Here's a news flash. Surprise, surprise. Well, look at you. The whole world is watching for my next move. Oh, my God. Times have changed. There are no rules. You're going to love it. Hi, and welcome to Skip Intro, the podcast from Binge, all about the world's best television. Each week, we're here to discuss the biggest new shows on Binge, along with our dinner party recommendations, those shows that we're just desperate to talk to someone about. My name is John Boehm, here with Ali Herbert-Burns, and together we look after all the great TV and movies that you see on Binge. Ali, this week we're talking about two inspiring women. John, we are. We are talking about a new drama series called Julia, based on the life of American chef and TV cook, Julia Child. And we've also got a new documentary series from Brene Brown called Atlas of the Heart, which is a five-part series which follows closely her most recent book. So a few different things to talk about today. Awesome. Well, let's head to the kitchen with Julia. I've had a recurring thought that I'd like to propose to you. An educational cooking show hosted by myself. Feels flimsy to me. This is public television, for God's sake. Shouldn't we go with someone with a more camera-friendly look and a less distinctive sound? You were onto something so big. I'm just sorry that my colleagues don't have the vision to see it yet. Where are these gentlemen? One of the advantages of looking like me is that you learn at a young age how not to take no for an answer. Inspired by the life of Julia Child, the new HBO Max drama series Julia explores America in the 1960s through the emerging prevalence of television, the rise of celebrity, and who was allowed to succeed on the new medium. Ali, uh, I have seen the first three episodes of this that, that are dropping, and I uh, absolutely love it. Like, this, this show is like, I didn't think I cared about this story, but this is the show for John. Oh, I am so happy to hear that, John Bohm, because well, well, we've got lots of new listeners this week and um, some of them might not know, you're not a massive cook, are you, John? I remember during lockdown we had a, we had a little team session when we were all bored and going around the bend and we'd like got the old women's weekly cookbook and we had to go back. You know, some of you might know when you used to get those when you're a kid, you got to choose. My mum used to let us go through the book and choose the cake we'd want to cook and you could have a pool or you could have a snail or you could have a fairy. And anyway, we did one during lockdown, didn't we? A team one. And then we had to show off our wares on Zoom. And I remember you saying it was the first time you'd gone. To, in order to participate in the team challenge, you had to buy a baking pan, buy scales, had never bought icing sugar or made a cake in your life. And you ended up winning the team challenge with this awesome jelly recreated cake. So Maybe next thing you'll be learning cordon bleu and becoming a French chef, perhaps. Probably not. I'm not sure if it was the cooking that I like about this show, although I am curious to actually now watch a real episode of the Julia Child show, the, the French chef. French chef, yeah. But yeah, this just hits on so many fascinating things. Um, You're going to like, love how it looks at the history of television. No, I the am. history like, of so food obvious. shows. And are we like, going to be hitting you talking about all the other food shows in the world that have come? Okay, go on. I'll let yeah. you talk. Obviously, I'm, I'm a TV nerd, so I work a pinch. But TV shows about TV, I do really like. I know that sounds like terrible. I do love that world, the behind the scenes. We've got a really good show you might like. It's called Gogglebox. It's like, yeah, you know. I'm also a big fan of Gogglebox. <laughs> so I really like the setting that it is, you know, this behind the scenes of it making of a TV show. But it's also really early in sort of TV's infancy. So they're like trying to figure stuff out. It's hyper local. The show they're making is for WGBH, which is like the Boston PBS public service channel that just, you know, has a studio that can go and make a cooking show if they want. Well, they didn't really want, did they? Well, no, they didn't really want. That's also the part that I really love is 
I think there's this really fascinating thing, you know, we work in TV, so we get to make some decisions in our lives, but, you know, we're not out there making all of them. And I think what's fascinating is you get to see the people who decide, who were deciding what's worthy of being on TV in the 1960s. And they were these men who thought what was worthy of being on TV in the 1960s was one man talking to another man about a book he wrote. That was their idea of television. Then when Julia comes along and, you know, she doesn't look like every other woman on or man on TV, she's, you know, fumbling around to make an omelette. She wasn't worthy of being on TV, of having her voice on the airwaves. So I think that clash is also fascinating because obviously now we have so many more voices on television and that's amazing. But to be at the very beginning of this, I think this is just such a perfect example of that. I love it on so many levels. <laughs> I've watched the first three apps. I can't wait for the next five, which are dropping weekly. The other thing is the time period. Like it's got this whole like Mrs. Maisel vibe that I think yeah. people will just love. And we haven't even talked about the cast yet, but yes. <laughs> okay, I, I'm finding it hard. I didn't know when to jump in because it's just so lovely <laughs> to see how excited you are. Because I agree with you. There are so many interesting things about this because on top of that behind the scenes in television, she was a very successful chef and was on television for a long time, but she was authentic. And the fact that she wasn't perfectly coiffed and her personality came through um, on the screen, didn't it? So she really connected ironically with her audience who were the female housewives of America that were sitting at home watching public broadcast television in the middle of the day and maybe not the Harvard-esque Boston book types that were white-collared male workers in the office. So, you know, it was also just almost they were programming it not to their audience or to only half their audience. So yeah, lots, so many interesting things about what we're dealing with in TV now and how much more diverse we are, thank heavens. Even just to our Sanditon chat last week where there was this show that all these people love that was like on the wrong platform and now it found its audience and now it's on a better platform. This is almost the exact same story of Julia Child finding an audience of these Boston housewives during the day, but the people running the network being like, oh, that's not our audience, that's not who it's for. It's a universal story that's still happening. And and there taps in a really other interesting part of it, which is not a big chest beating feminist bent, but a really kind of interesting nod to, yeah, the decisions in the TV room. There's a young associate producer who has the idea to bring her in and put her on the show. She's originally brought onto the book review show because she wrote a cookbook. So this young female associate producer who kind of barracked for her and she had a great emerging young female book editor who was also editing her and supporting her in her book publishing and yeah kind of an interesting element of they could see a market that some of the more senior and male both these examples in the publishing business or the tv business couldn't see it's really interesting isn't it so let's jump into the cast Julia Child is played by Sarah Lancashire, who I at least best knew from Happy Valley. Wonderful show. She's had a couple of series and, and is returning. And her husband, Paul Child, is played by David Hyde Pierce, who, of course, our audiences will know from Frasier. But it's also got a great supporting Daphne! Cast. Daphne! <laughs> It's got a great supporting cast, including Bibi Newworth, who's also from Frasier, Judith Light, Isabella Rossellini, James Cromwell. It's very actor As in babe, James Cromwell. Yeah, people can't see me, but I've got babe in the background. I should have made the connection. So excellent cast. It feels so premium. Like, I don't know if it's the periodness of it or that there's all these great actors, but yeah, I just love everything about it. Well, it's kind of like, it gives you the kind of warm hug of a bake-off in it with a drama show, doesn't it? So if you love British Bake Off, Australian Bake Off, any Bake Off, that's far too simple, you know, a line to draw because they're both about food. But in the way, the simplicity and the heartfeltness of nourishing your soul through a friendly jaunt through cooking, there's an element of that, isn't that? Of the way she's 
putting cooking into the center of life and saying it should be something that you love and that nourishes you and adds to your life. It shouldn't be out of a can. It shouldn't be out of a microwave. It's kind of core to a happy life. And that it brings people together and all all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I think the thing that you're going to love is the first time they're there trying to work out how, because it was a 28-minute episode, her first ever episode, and they had to shoot it. There was no breaks. You know, it was expensive. They didn't have kind of digital films like we do today. So they had to kind of just shoot rolling for the whole 28 minutes, didn't they, and filled the time. And she was cooking chicken in red wine, famous French dish, which she says takes three or four hours, which hello in today's time, who's got three or four hours to make cocovan. But anyway, that aside, um, she's like, how am I actually going to do it in 28 minutes? And this is kind of the beginnings of pre-preparing and then here's something I made later and you know how the shot and the camera looks when you're bending down to you know open the oven and yeah just like looking straight to camera and then chopping and all these things that were just so you think about how many tv chefs have come since her so I found that really interesting kind of seeing how tv cooking kind of started these days we call them chop and chat shows because Someone standing hand a, in a pan. Someone at a kitchen table doesn't have a wall and they're just staring at a camera. They invented this genre. It's just incredible to see it from the very beginning. And yeah, like you said, even having the conversation about like, how are we going to cook it if the show's only <laughs> half an hour? Like it just no one, no one had thought of pre-making something. Years ago, I published a cookbook in a previous work life when I was in publishing. And I remember being so disappointed seeing behind the scenes of cookbook photography and how you get the pictures to like, stand up and toothpicks and all these different things that we use just for you know a magazine or or a book so you can imagine with tv cooking how hard it would have been when she yeah had limited ability to prep and edit her episodes why she had to be authentic didn't she because she was winging it things were going wrong you know things caught fire so it had to be about her personality driving forward the show and yeah I'm with you I really enjoyed this series I think it's really soft and gentle and interesting and it's got layers to it that don't aggressively go out and hit you in the face you're just absorbing more about the history and the period than you realize because you're just kind of following what is otherwise an engaging story it's fun and low stakes, but also intersects with so many different things that are happening, like in the world at the time. I'm really interested to see where they go with the rest of the series. It's interesting because they say now that we're in the golden age of television and, you know, everybody wants to make great TV series and these famous directors and actors. And it used to be that you were a film actor and a television actor was a different class of actor. They turned their nose down on doing television, didn't they? And now... That's just completely revolutionised and people make TV and film and and move between the mediums. But I found it really interesting to your early point about almost like the snobbery of what they wanted, what they felt public broadcasting needed to be, which was more almost like an academic educational mass market tool to kind of keep America progressing. Um, And the guy who produces her, he already feels like he's sold out by giving up a life in the theatre to work for television, but at least he's working for public broadcasting and things. Like you said, one of the themes is this idea that TV is lowbrow and that, you know, the best you can make of the medium is have old men talking about books on it. But 60 years later, we're still talking about, like, what's the best use of our airwaves and how do we entertain people and keep them engaged? And, you know, the other thing, which is, like, sums up most of my career, is that if people aren't watching the thing you're putting on the screen, then what's the point? It's that constant never-ending battle of how do you find something that people are going to watch that's also worth their time and this show just happens to hit on that which also just happens to be a central tenet of my career so that's part part of why I think I find it so fascinating (laughs) it's so true like we you know I know when we both worked on free to air it was different because you'd wake up and kind of look at the ratings every morning at two minutes to nine but even in streaming you're exactly right we want to entertain people we want people to use their time wisely and to feel 
you know, liberated to watch the things that bring them joy. So, um, yeah, very interesting. I think I'm sure the guys at HBO Max would have got a giggle as they kind of looked at the evils of television as they are now so good at making it it's fun so julia um it drops weekly i think we start with a few episodes don't we and then it drops yeah it's, it's going out weekly we're dropping three episodes on sunday april 3rd so depending on when you're listening to this and then it's weekly episodes after that for eight episodes in total doing this is genius bbc is making docs about prize-winning scientists while we're peddling cookbooks man <laughs> Every critic could silence every artist. How dull would the world be then? Now, butchering a chicken. Nothing to be afraid of. The legs, the wings, the thighs, and the breasts. I envision a confederacy of women and estrogen safety net. Well, I like the sound of that. Based on her book of the same name, Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart is a journey through our emotions, how we label them, and how they can help us make meaningful connections. Mixing a traditional talk show format with a touch of PowerPoint and a mix of clips from film and television to illustrate her points, Atlas of the Heart is a unique and enlightening piece of television. How many of you know the feeling that your life is unfolding faster than what you can manage? Language is the greatest human portal that we have. Having access to the right words changes everything. Ali, we've spoken a lot about shows that get made these days thanks to the wonders of streaming. This feels like a show that I don't think you'd find on television pre-streaming. I think you used to find segments of this on the Oprah show. Like, you know, you'd get experts on and they would talk through themes or, you know, they'd talk to a book that they might have made about this. But I think it is quite unique to have watched five episodes of, yeah, somebody talking through their thesis, their work in this kind of format. So it is unique. Yeah, I've struggled a little bit to explain the concept because it is unique, but also it's not a documentary. It's not a talk show. It's not a TED talk, but it's kind of all those things at once somehow. It is. It's almost like don't read the book, watch the show. It's an actual deep dive and follows her work. And I think having the clips and some of the elements that go with this in this format, in some ways it helps you absorb the story more because, you know, you can pause, you can take it on, you can go back. Sometimes when I listen to audiobooks or podcasts, I'm trying to like compute what they're saying and I'm always fumbling around to pause and go back. And I think what I found interesting about this is it almost was easier to understand because you were listening to it. She had her research, but it was demonstrated in a really accessible way. And I think that's what I meant with like the Oprah Winfrey reference because it kind of introduces psychology and self-improvement in a kind of really mass mainstream way. It does almost look like the Oprah Winfrey show. It's this beautiful set with this big audience and this huge screen. But yeah, it is really easy to follow. Thanks partially to this like PowerPoint style TED talk thing where she puts up definitions, shows you clips from movies and shows that are relevant to what she's talking about. And then, you know, she goes to the audience and she gets those personal stories as well. But just so people have some concept of what we're talking about, basically it's a series of definitions of different emotions, effectively. The episodes are sort of grouped into different types of emotions, but some of the things she talks about are anguish, wonder, awe, anxiety, envy, jealousy, resentment. Compassion, empathy, uh, regret, avoidance, um, overwhelmed, like being, being overwhelmed. Um, any any favourite emotions for you, Alan? I think kind of before we get into specific emotion, what I thought was, um, and yeah, again, to help kind of frame this for people, is Atlas of the Heart, she was on Oprah's podcast, Super Soul 
sessions, I think it's called, back in December when this book came out. And I think Oprah said, you know, four or five million people downloaded it um, in the first month. This was the number one best-selling book before it was physically available. Brene has been the number one bestseller author on the New York Times, you know, reading list for six or seven of her previous books. She's a really big deal. She has an exclusive deal with Spotify. She does a lot of work with corporations. And what she's, I think the way she described at the very beginning of the episode, which I found really helpful, which again, I'd heard her talk about in the podcast, but it it really hit for me when I watched it was she's been researching communication for 20, 30 years. She kind of studied it at college and she originally wanted her college, I won't get these right, the American Australian comparison to education levels, but like her thesis or a dissertation to be effectively a framework for communication. She wasn't able to describe it or land that back then and she's kind of spent the rest of her career and atlas of the heart she says is the coming together of everything she's kind of previously learned and the reason why do you say why do you need a communication framework her belief is that all human happiness or suffering comes from feeling connected and communication is the key to connection And rather than always looking outwardly to feel connected, as you do, she does some really good examples of like, you know, death scrolls on Instagram and things like that. She believes that you need to know yourself first to then feel connected to yourself, to then know who you are and how you connect out to the world beyond you. And if you don't even understand your emotions, and I know you just listed off a whole heap of them, but if you don't know how to um, label them or if you're actually feeling the right thing, because sometimes we get a bit confused because this is stuff that you're not really taught, you almost start off from every interaction on the wrong foot or on the back foot because you haven't quite ascertained how you feel and what you need. So you might go out and look for the wrong kind of influence or you might pick up a bottle of wine or you might get into an argumentative state or you might become a workaholic because you haven't kind of been able to identify your emotion. And if you can do that and you can be grounded in that, then you can communicate and be more connected to people. Does that make sense? Is that what you got? <laughs> yeah. I'm not as familiar with sort of her history. I know she came from Oprah and has written books and research and stuff, but my understanding is the emotion she's known for talking about a lot is vulnerability. She feels like a lot of things come back to that. And shame. Which is also explored in this series. I mean, we're talking about Julia Child and her success was about being authentic and connecting with her audience. I think Brene Brown has a huge audience. And I think for people that love and know Brene Brown, they will love this series. My hope is it also um, educates and offers a way into this kind of self-improvement for people that might otherwise have not chosen to pick up a self-help book or listen to her podcast. And I think the use of other media and movies and things as a way in for people to help identify some of the themes that she's talking about, make it not too... um, Oprah culty, you know, and it's an interesting series. I think what really helps is that so much of this is framed around her like decades of research. Like there's a very academic background. It's not just these are my thoughts and ideas. It's like she's spoken to tens of thousands of people. She's done all this research and she understands the way our emotions interact with how we connect with people and stuff like that. But it's, it just comes from, I feel like, a much more authoritative space when it's coming from her. It's not an influencer that's kind of just Googled something. Like she's a, she's a proper expert in her field, proven and impactful research. And I love how she talks early on in the, in the episode about where this work came from and it was a whole lot of data that had come out of another session years ago and when they 
were sitting there with a really data science approach and looking at all of this stuff, they were able to effectively map all these themes together and go, oh my gosh, this is sitting in front of us. It was being presented in lots of different almost data points, but when you could break it and clump it, it became thematic and that allowed her to have this kind of breakthrough work and the outcome is hence atlas of the heart like a cartographer someone that's able to map and and show you the way it's not someone telling you what to do which is often these you know rich kid poor kid 10 steps to success to follow this and do a four-hour work week or whatever it is it's her saying you have to be the person that guides you through you are your own cartographer and start there with this framework and your life will get better did your life get better, John? Are you smarter, happier? <laughs> I think I'm, I'm smarter from it, I think. I've watched three of the five episodes. I think what I found interesting, and this is probably going to sound boring, but she really does dig into the actual definition and meaning of some of these words and some of these things that we label or we yeah. don't label that are happening to us or are happening to other people. Like, you know, I think we're all kind of familiar with anxiety but I think even I think it's one of the first ones she talks about is she talks about anguish and it's like it's just not a word you think about a lot oh that was you know I felt a bit of anguish or something but anguish is very different to despair is very Mm. different to like jealousy I did like how she actually drilled into it when you actually think about the definition of something it then makes you think about your experience with it it's like was that an anguishing moment or was I sad like she talks about it with jealousy and envy which I thought was really clever she's like Jealousy is when you're at risk yourself. It's when you are fearful because something you have or you want is at risk normally from another person. Whereas envy is something you don't have, but you look at that person and go, oh, wow, I wish I was, you know, you look at their Instagram feed and you go, oh, I'm envious actually. I would love to be in Croatia like you are right now rather than going, I'm jealous because like jealous is overstating your emotion because you don't, you're not actually at risk of, losing something so yeah like she does she does really make you then go oh what am I actually feeling here next time I'm wanting to go to Croatia yeah fans of Brene Brown I think will love this I think it really adds to the book and the podcast experience Um, and I think people that aren't familiar with her it's a really accessible way into this type of information it's not too dry and she's yeah she's really honest and authentic in it John, and I know you mentioned all the emotions before. Do you feel them all at once? We can do a binge with this, can't we? So if you're really into this and you're really enjoying the kind of interactive learning, you can watch all five episodes and experience the depth of her thesis and learning. Yes, all five episodes are streaming now. And yeah, I I wouldn't call it an overwhelming watch. It's one you could definitely burn through in an afternoon. John, one funny thing I thought when I was watching this was... We need Brene Brown to watch Love Me, binge original drama, because she opens her show talking about a quote from Rumi. And we had a quote from Rumi in Love Me, a couple of quotes that we used in the marketing, but also in the series. And I thought, well, maybe she'll enjoy the emotional drama that is Love Me because she certainly pushes us to um, acknowledge and embrace emotions. We're here to figure out how do we cultivate meaningful connection with ourselves and each other. I may even subject myself to some very difficult role plays. I feel like I'm about to lose my job. Oh my gosh, you poor thing. Bless your heart. Okay, let's stop. I can't take it. (laughs) John, for our listeners and our many new listeners that are growing every week, thanks guys for listening. 
This is the part of the pod where you give us your dinner party recommendations because if we're having dinner with our friends, these are the kind of shows we talk about. What is your John recommendation for this week? So I know dinner party recommendations are usually a hidden gem or something from the library, but we do have so many new things on Binge that we're not always able to fit them into the pod. So this is actually brand new, but I wanted to give it a shout out. Controversial. Um, Okay. I know. Sorry. And that is One Perfect Shot. What if we could step into a single powerful frame? Oh my gosh, look at this. Designed and directed by visionary filmmakers. This is their one perfect shot. This is one of only a a handful of TV shows that are based on Twitter accounts. But uh, for those that aren't familiar, uh, One Perfect Shot is a Twitter account that sort of highlights the beauty of film and cinematography. Ava DuVernay has adapted the Twitter account into a um, six-part documentary series. And basically each episode is a director talking about a specific film and then sort of on a more granular level talking about a specific scene in that film. And they obviously spend a lot of time talking to the the director, but they also talk to, you know, the costume designers and editors and visual effects people and everyone that was involved in making this one perfect shot as as they kind of frame it. And the fun little conceit or format of the series is that they kind of um, CGI recreate the scene at the end where the director kind of walks through it and is able to like talk to and point to different parts of this, you know, one perfect shot that they've created. So it's like definitely one for film nerds, but also it's just like a fun behind the scenes look at sort of these specific films and moments. It's six by half hours. So it's actually really quick to get through because, you know, you talk to the director and the other people involved and then you kind of end on this beautiful scene. One season, we've got all episodes up right now and they talk to a bunch of great directors, but specifically they talk to Patty Jenkins about Wonder Woman. They talk to Aaron Sorkin about the trial of Chicago 7, John Chu about Crazy Rich Asians, Malcolm Lee about Girls Trip, Michael Mann about Heat, Casey Lemons about Harriet. I'd not seen some of the films that they did the one perfect shot and it's still like super interesting. I had seen some of the ones, it's also super interesting. So yeah, I think you can go into it and a little either inspire you to watch the film or you just kind of be in a little bit of awe about, you know, how they pull together these awesome scenes. What a great recommendation, John. So six episodes take you through how many films? Is it one one film per app or are there multiple? Yeah, one direct and film per ep. So there's the six different films and directors you can work your way through. Great one for the um, TV and film nerds out there. Love it. Well, we said at the beginning we weren't trying to coordinate this episode of the podcast to be educational, but so far we've got a look at cooking. We've got a look at self-development and and psychology and now, you know, lifting the curtain to um, behind the scenes of, of TV making. I've got a documentary this week which is a couple of years old now. It's three parts and it's called Expecting Amy and it's um, an HBO Max documentary which follows the journey of Amy Schumer when she was pregnant with her now son and she had a really, really difficult pregnancy, a really, really difficult pregnancy um, and her journey to conceive and have a child. And she is so honest and so raw and just brought such an interesting point of view to pregnancy that I think it's worth a bit of a shout. There's a new series for her out at the moment, isn't there? Life and Beth. Life and Beth. And it got me thinking to watching that this week, back to that, because Amy Schumer for me is, you know, she's quite crash. She's quite funny. You know, I think she's very funny, but people, a bit of Vegemite, people either love her or hate her. But I found watching Expecting Amy 
um, a few years ago, really, I saw another side to her that I really liked. But the other little gem in this is Bridget Everett, who appears because they're on the New York comedy scene together. And for those that listen to the podcast for the last few weeks, you would have heard John and I talk about somebody somewhere a few weeks ago, which is still one of my favorite things to happen in 2022 in TV land, the most kind, uplifting, sweet show that has thankfully been renewed for a second season, which stars Bridget Everett. So there's a couple of links back to this. Amy really kind of takes you inside her life. Like it's really, really um, disarming how uh, much access she provides. Her husband, Chris Fisher, is a is a chef. Um, he's got autism. They talk about that quite a lot and the challenges that throws up in their relationship. You see her apartment and her life and she's literally coming off stage and throwing up and goes into hospital a lot because she gets, I'm not sure the name of it, sorry, but quite a rare thing. But some people, when they get pregnant, they just can't stop throwing up. I think Kate Middleton had it and some celebrities, but you basically are so unwell that you almost get hospitalized. So she's literally on, you see her on stage doing this amazingly funny stand-up routine and then she's backstage in the green room like, being really, really sick. So it's a really honest look at the path to motherhood. And I think if you're a Amy Schumer fan or you want to know a bit more about her, now's the time. Have you watched it, John? I have not watched Expecting Amy, but I am I am un- unashamedly a big Amy Schumer fan. I've liked her from the very beginning from um, Inside Amy Schumer, which is also where I was first introduced to Bridget Everett. Yeah. Um, so I remember also- when we bought that years ago at Stan. We loved it. Yeah, it was very popular too, wasn't it? But yeah, so it was great to, again, see Bridget Everett, um, somebody somewhere, which, yeah, I agree is one of the best things that's come out this year as well. So... Yeah, we're we're hitting on so many themes with these recommendations this week. You can learn about cooking. You can learn about self-improvement. You can learn about pregnancy. and television (laughs) and pregnancy. (laughs) I love it. It all comes back together. So. Binge is very educational. I think it is. is. The, is it should just, you know, yeah, put put it on in schools when um, the teacher's <laughs> sick. Not suggesting we can become part of the curriculum, but no, got to have a bit of fun. But what an interesting range of things this week. Yeah, all really worth your time. I'm not scared of giving birth. I'm really excited to hold him. My baby's having a baby. Yeah. Chris was shook. He was trying to pull out, but I kept him in. I had like a month I wasn't sick. Barely. This is too much. White flag. So in summary, this week we talked about Julia, we talked about uh, Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart, I suggested you check out One Perfect Shot, Ali suggested you check out Expecting Amy. All of these are streaming right now, or in the case of Julia, will be very soon, depending on when you're listening. And you can, of course, find Binge on your favourite device. I'm John Boehm, joined every week uh, by Ali. Thank you so much for listening. This podcast was produced by Dan Barrett with audio editing and mixing by Chris Yates. And we'll be back next week with uh, Even Jones. <laughs>